What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello and welcome back to New Books and Law, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Siobhan Barco, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Candy Gunther Brown about her new book, Debating Yoga and Mindfulness in Public Schools, Reforming Secular Education or Reestablishing Religion. Dr. Brown, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Could you tell me about your experience as an academic scholar serving as an expert witness? Sure. I originally was writing books about evangelical and Pentecostal Christianity. And then that research interest led me into alternative medicine, including yoga and meditation. So one of my books was coming out in 2013. It was called The Healing Gods, Complementary and Alternative Medicine in Christian America. And it includes a chapter on yoga. So this was in production, and I was actually on sabbatical, uh, taking a break from writing that book, when a couple of my law professor colleagues sent me emails uh, in the UK telling me about developing legal controversy over yoga in a public school. And they'd read some of my previous work, so they thought I might be interested in this case. Uh, I was in the mode of just sending out book announcements to uh, various parties. And so I sent out announcements uh, for the book to the attorneys who were representing the parties in this case. And my expectation was that would be the sum total of my involvement in that case. I hadn't been an expert witness. That wasn't really something that I was in the market to try to become. But a few weeks after I sent out the book announcements, The attorney for the plaintiffs contacted me asking me if I would review materials for the case and, depending upon my findings, if I would consider uh, writing a declaration and possibly testifying uh, at court. Uh, and, And he had a couple of questions for me. They were basically, well, what is yoga and what is the particular kind of yoga that is being practiced in this school district? It was Ashtanga yoga, which was developed by Patabi Joyce had a foundation named after him. That foundation was giving funding to the school district for specifically this kind of program. And then the attorney also wanted to know, well, what is religion? And how do scholars define religion? How do courts define religion? And what are the implications of this? So I agreed to serve as an expert in this case. I reviewed a lot of materials wrote a declaration, and then I did end up flying out to testify and ended up testifying for about six hours over the course of two days. And then I thought that would be the end of my involvement. But it was basically such a fascinating and complicated case, um, much more than I had expected. And so I ended up doing more research and basically spent the next six years doing more research on yoga and meditation programs in schools. And along the way, 
it became kind of known to various communities that this was something that I was researching. And so I started to get cold contact emails and phone calls from parents, from school districts, from attorneys, from the directors of different mindfulness and yoga programs, wanting to hear what my take on these programs was. So I basically tried to be as helpful as I could, provide information, and I did end up then serving as an expert in several more cases over different kinds of yoga and meditation programs. What sources did you use to craft this work? So there was a lot of kind of different kinds of research that went into the project. So there were a uh, declarations that were given by kind of both the school districts and parents in the legal proceedings. A lot of those did make their way into the court record. Normally, a person doesn't come across those unless they've got some access to get into those records. So I had a lot of unpublished trial records. And then I had the transcripts from all the days in court And then as I became involved in other cases, all the research that was being done by various parties, again, some of it published, but a lot of it not really very widely available. Uh, I also ended up interviewing a lot of people, both formally and uh, kind of lunchtime chats, superintendents, school board members, uh, the directors of mindfulness and yoga programs, attorneys, parents, children, when they kind of went through the proper procedures and gave proper consents for that. And I also observed a lot of hours of meditation and yoga practice. Uh, I read all of the published materials that I could find, both in print and uh, uh, on the Internet, in all the various versions, because not only is the Internet just a very unstable kind of medium, but when there are legal controversies involved, it becomes even more unstable. And so it became really important to be able to track the history of different websites and to basically watch as materials changed over time with different archived copies of website. And so I basically just tried to find out as much as I possibly could about specific programs, but then also to make sure that I really understood what all the the legal precedents were. And so I read just a lot of court cases and decisions and law review articles and analysis uh, by legal scholars, as well as those who were involved in particular cases. Could you describe some of the particular yoga and meditation programs in schools? What legal challenges have these programs faced? I've looked particularly at a number of different programs. Uh, Maybe for starters, I'll just start off with one just to kind of give you a little bit more depth rather than a whole bunch of superficial coverage. And I'll start off with the first case that was litigated in 2013. The case was called Sedlock v. Baird. It was a Superior Court of San Diego County, California case. It was uh, eventually appealed in California, but then the appeal was dropped before it went on to the level of the Supreme Court of California. And the, the case was over a particular Ashtanga yoga program that was being funded by the K. Patabi Joyce Foundation with funding particularly from Sonia and Paul Tudor Jones. 
So a lot of money that this family had. Sonia Jones was a, a devotee of Joyce Yoga. She was very excited about it for herself. She also had a lot of interest in spreading it to others. And so uh, there were some particular connections that the Joyce Foundation had specifically in Encinitas, which is a coastal town in San Diego County, California. And so this was the original place where Patabi Joyce first came to the United States from India, where he was a Hindu Brahmin and yoga guru. And he had students who first from the U.S. traveled to India, to Mysore, to study with him. Then in the 1970s, one of his students invited him to California and specifically to Encinitas. Uh, he brought a son, uh, Manju Joyce, with him, and he never left. He just moved to Encinitas at that time, and he was teaching Ashtanga Yoga in Encinitas. His wife was teaching kindergarten in the Encinitas Union School District. And so when the Joneses decided they wanted to fund this foundation, it was starting to be formed right when Joyce was in decline, and the program started a couple of years after he died. And it was meant to kind of carry on his legacy. And particularly, if you look at the tax returns for the Joyce Foundation. What it articulates is a mission of having yoga studios, a foundation, and then kind of clothing boutiques to help fund the foundation with the goal of making yoga and meditation, in their words, essential components of the curriculum and required for teacher credentialing. In line with Joyce's goal of making this a, again, in his words, compulsory practice for all public schools. So this was the goal. They approached the school district, offered them initially half a million dollars to put this yoga program into their schools. Uh, and then uh, ultimately they gave them about $4 million to uh, put the program in. Uh, and so the school program closely followed Ashtanga yoga. Ashtanga means basically eight limbed yoga has moral and ethical teachings, there are postures, that's what kind of the yoga is best known for. But ultimately, the goal is samadhi, which Joyce defined very specifically as to become one with God. And his idea was you don't have to talk about Hindu philosophy. And for him, this was very definitely Hindu. The goal was to make one become one with God, whether they want it or not, again, his language. And the way you do that is you just get people doing the practices, you just get the postures. And Specifically, you start the routine with sun salutations, Surya Namaskara, which is, again, by Joyce's definition, it is bowing in prayer to the sun god Surya, because Surya is kind of head of the entire pantheon of deities, and each kind of posture has its own deity. And then you end by sitting in lotus pose to meditate so that you're ready to really come to the state of enlightenment. You kind of then take rest in corpse pose, lying on your back, contemplating your, your ultimate death. So there's a very clear soteriological or kind of salvation-oriented goal of Ashtanga. You want to be enlightened, you want to become one with the divine, which is Brahman. It's not a Christian god. It's uh, And for Joyce, it's very specifically a Hindu kind of definition of what this is. So the school district takes this money, they start the program, they're following the Ashtanga sequence, and parents basically become very concerned about this. And they start to complain, they write letters, they go to school board meetings. They want the school district just to voluntarily kind of not make this something that's mandatory. School district goes the distance of allowing kids to opt out, but it's still 
required PE. This is the only way to get exercise in the PE program is to do this program. The school district needs the money. They don't have money for PE otherwise. And so ultimately, this ends up being litigated. And the claims made by the plaintiffs were essentially that this was an endorsement of religion and specifically of the version of Hinduism being promoted by Joyce and the Joyce Foundation, and that this is also an entanglement with a religious organization because there was a very ongoing role of the foundation in terms of selecting, training the teachers, supervising, observing the work that was being done in the classroom. The judge ultimately found that Ashtanga yoga and yoga more broadly is religious, that this is the foundation for the program. But he allowed the program because he thought that the children wouldn't notice that it was religious and therefore it wasn't an endorsement of religion. Now, we could go into all kinds of weeds on that with he was using a kind of child observer standard, which isn't actually the standard that's used by the uh, the courts. But that was his reasoning in the decision. And then the appellate court upheld the decision, reaching the conclusion that this was just a passive funding situation, even though the very close involvement of the foundation with the school district was, in the judge's words, the most troublesome issue for him. So he was worried about entanglement, but ultimately he allowed the program to continue. What does your work tell us about when, how, and why people construct practices as religious or secular or both? Yeah, so we'll we'll stick with the same example of the Joyce Ashtanga program because I think it can help us to get at that question. So the videos of the classroom practices that were submitted into evidence by the school district were narrated by Eddie Stern, who was introduced in the videos as a health and wellness project manager in New York. And that was the only information that the judge was given in the videos. Now, what the plaintiff's attorney didn't realize until it was too late to put this into evidence was that Stern actually had a lot of other ideas about yoga. He presented it as completely secular. It's just what you do with your body. It affects your mind. This is focus. This is education. Uh, And he shows up in the video, button down shirt and sweater, kind of just presenting this as a secular program. Well, within kind of months of this process, Stern was both before and afterwards was involved in some other kind of controversies over yoga because he's not only a health and wellness project manager, he actually directs an Ashtanga yoga studio in New York in which there is a temple in the center, temple to, to Ganesh, who's one of, one of the deities who he reveres. And he says in a YouTube video, published within months of the Encinitas trial when he's dressed in Indian robes doing a puja, that even though I've never converted from Judaism to Hinduism, I love worshiping Ganesh and the other gods, and this is what Ashtanga Yoga is. And he was the leading figure in arguing in a New York City sales tax controversy that yoga is religious and therefore should not be subject to sales taxes. And so if you can have free exercise exemptions, then it's not religious. If you wanted to public schools, then it is. And it became even more interesting here because the plaintiff's attorney tried to solicit an, uh, a brief from the Hindu American Foundation going into appeal because that foundation's goal is to take back yoga, convince Americans that this really has Hindu roots. Uh, so that's her goal on the one hand. But 
she responded to the attorney that she couldn't submit a brief because she has a conflict of interest in that she is on the board for the Broom Street Ganesha Temple. That was when the attorney realized that that temple was run by the same Eddie Stern. And so her conflict was a clear one. She was a financial donor and a board member for an organization that wanted yoga in public schools at the same time she wanted yoga to be recognized as Hindu. Just kind of a brief, another example from another one of the cases in which I testified. This was in Pennsylvania, and it was over super brain yoga or haddock yoga and phonic healing. Uh, and in that case, it was a school district that was opposing a charter school that was founded on these yoga programs because the way kind of the finances are set up in Pennsylvania, school districts stand to lose a lot of money when charter schools are started. If you say that the charter school is religious, that's one reason that that charter school might not be allowed to open. And this law firm that litigated a couple of different charter schools was successful in both of those litigations. So they succeeded in arguing yoga is religious. There's a financial motivation in taking that position. But in that case, so one of these schools with super brain yoga, it was one of the co-founders for the school argued in the case of kind of the charter school, completely non-religious, secular, educational exercise. Well, a year prior to this, he had sued a hospital where he was a medical doctor for trying to fire him for his involvement in these very same practices. And in his briefs for that case, he argued this is just the same as Catholicism, Judaism, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, any other religion. If you're going to be fired because here's religious discrimination, that would be another case when something is religious. So there really are some legal, financial, political kinds of stakes that go into these definitions. What implications does defining or choosing not to define terms have upon the functionality of the First Amendment and upon the decisions of policymakers? Who gets to decide these definitions? Yeah, so that's a great question. So we'll focus just on the context of public schools, just kind of for kind of ease of answering it. And basically what happens in practice is that the school principal, maybe the superintendent of a school board, uh, will decide if there's a controversy, is this practice something that's religious? And they'll draw a bit on court rulings for this. And so generally, prayer and Bible reading, there have been a lot of court rulings. Those aren't appropriate in public school context during regular school hours, kind of school endorsement of those practices. But then there hasn't really been a whole lot of discussion of yoga and meditation practices. Really, the clearest stance that's been taken legally was the 1979 uh, appellate decision in Malnak v. Yogi, which was over an elective high school transcendental meditation class. And in that case, what the courts found was this was a violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, even though the promoters of the program insisted that this was science and not religion. And then there was a, a follow-up, different appellate court decision that kind of added to the kind of criteria that were set out for Malnak v. Yogi, and this was U.S. v. Myers. And in this case, it was a prisoner who was claiming that the Church of Marijuana was his religion, and he needed to have that accommodated. And in that case, the court found that that's not a bona fide religion, even though that you say that it is. So what the court did in these, these two cases was to say, look, there are multiple subjective interpretations of whether a practice, whether it's transcendental meditation or marijuana use, is that religion. But these are also pretty self-interested 
kinds of subjective definitions. And so what these courts tried to do in articulating a set of criteria that have now been applied by, by a number of courts in different appellate districts has been to set up more objective criteria, recognizing that there's no kind of pure objectivity, that there's still going to be biases in the courts and otherwise. But it's that effort to try and mediate definitions that courts have done. Now, for school policymakers, they they probably don't have a lot of knowledge of these court decisions or how they might apply, and they haven't been applied specifically to yoga or mindfulness. In the Encinitas, Sedlock v. Baird case, the judge really hadn't dealt with this kind of constitutional question, and he was trying to figure out the law as he went. But what happens often is the school districts will just accept the promotional materials uh, at face value and say, well... We're claiming that this is non-religious. Here are some scientific studies that might kind of be presented to say that this is non-religious. And then it's up to the school board or the principal to say, well, are we going to take seriously the concerns of the parents that this is religious? And so what ends up being at stake is that they're competing understandings and in many of the kind of school situations, because these programs are proliferating in thousands of schools now, most often the parents are the ones who are not being kind of taken seriously in their complaints, or uh, if the program continues, it's being defined as either secular based upon some scientific studies, or it's being defined as kind of religion neutral or arguable or debatable. But the decision not to define something as religion or not religion is actually a decision to define it as not religion or not religion enough or consistently enough that it's something that would be prohibited in a reading of First Amendment law as applied to public schools. So who should do the defining? I mean, that, that's got a whole lot more complicated issues. But where really kind of practically the rubber meets the road is that there's a lot of divisions over this. And there are some people who are really motivated to get these programs into schools, sometimes for scientific reasons, educational reasons, they're worried about a kind of perceived crisis in public education. And there is a lot of stress, anxiety, depression, etc. in schools, they're looking for something non religious, this seems like it might fit the bill. But then there are also parents for whom for them, it smacks of idolatry, bowing down to the sun god or meditating on one's breath or body or the present moment in this kind of non-judgmental way. That actually can be seen as a violation of religious ideals of who the appropriate object of meditation is, uh, God or the Bible for conservative Christians often, where kind of the present might not actually be the right moment to focus on. They, they want to be remembering the past, what they've done, what God's done. They're looking for the future with hope and anticipation. So the nub of the concern is really that this is idolatry and it's religious coercion. But if this is just defined as arguable, debatable, then that kind of argument for coercion is usually not going to be something that affects policy. How do court cases help you analyze and understand religious culture? Yeah, so I think, I mean, this actually builds in a lot of ways on my last answer, in that you can really understand some of the 
core divisions and polarizations in religious and political culture. I mean, politically, right? I mean, one of the big questions for those trying to understand voting behavior over the last years is why, if you believe the public uh, kind of opinion polls or the exit polls for the 2016 elections, why would 80% of evangelicals vote for Trump when he doesn't seem to affirm a lot of evangelical ideals. And one of the answers to that is if you kind of dig down a little bit more into the polling data, is that at least a third of the pro-Trump votes were about the Supreme Court nominations. And one of the key concerns there is a worry over religious freedom. And so what gets the most media attention is cases like the masterpiece Baker. So Baker feels like he's being forced to act in violation of his religious conscience by baking a cake for a same-sex couple. And the court Supreme Court ultimately sides with him. And that's what gets the media attention. But really what's close to home for a lot of evangelical voters is this worry that there's going to be religious freedom issues for them. It's not just going to be a baker or a photographer or a florist, but they're going to be in a school situation with their kids and they're going to be coerced either very formally or more subtly to practice things that for them are religious. It's a violation of conscience. And I mean, this is where kind of teacher authority, peer pressure, even if they can opt out, there's still a kind of pressure to participate in the program. And so I think a lot of the political divisions that we see and a lot of the kind of religious divides, I mean, court cases like yoga and mindfulness, and I think we're going to see more of these. I mean, there's actually some things that might develop into litigations that are going on right now, these cases kind of point to those larger cultural fissures and can be a window into understanding why there would be so much opposition that for a lot of people would seem like, well, these are stress reducing exercises. You're just breathing a little bit. You're just doing some exercises. It's good for everyone. What's the big deal? But if you look at the cases, you can start to see how it feels like a life and death kind of stake. And popular Christian culture, one of the kind of Sunday school stories kids have grown up with, if they've grown up in a church, is of people being asked to bow down to an idol and being thrown into a fiery furnace for refusing to do it. And so they can even see themselves as kind of risking being thrown into a kind of metaphorical fiery furnace. And it feels like, you know, to be faithful to our religion, to our God, that's what we have to do. So that gives us a kind of insight into why kind of people are acting the way they are religiously and politically, I think. What are your recommendations for best practices for educators, courts, and families? Yes. Yeah, so I think the easiest way to encapsulate this would be to think about two principles. First of all, transparency, and secondly, volunteerism. One of the complaints of parents is that these programs are being presented as purely secular, purely evidence-based. There might be some nod to some kind of religious history, but in a sense of, well, that was in the ancient past. That's not how it's being done now. This has been a secularized kind of program. So, I mean, this is kind of drawing on my research, interviews with litigants and, and so forth. Uh, there would be a lot of kind of setting at ease those who are really troubled by these programs if there were just transparency about both historic and ongoing kinds of affiliations with religion. But then secondly, 
making these programs genuinely voluntary. Uh, another way of putting this would be applying the principle of informed consent that's used throughout healthcare. I mean, anytime you go into a physician's office, you're asked to sign uh, an informed consent form, essentially, where you're kind of saying, I know what this is, and I want to be a part of this practice. And what the courts have found with prayer and Bible reading cases, or even that transcendental meditation case, is that opt-outs aren't good enough to protect children against subtle coercive pressures. And so an opt-in model of informed consent could be something that could withstand legal challenges a lot more effectively and also be something that would alleviate the concerns of parents. And, And I mean, one of the issues kind of here is that if you track survey research on participants in nominally secular meditation yoga programs, you can actually track changes in spiritual and religious experiences through participation in those secular programs. So uh, people report more spiritual experiences. And over time, the longer they participate, there's often shifts in religious affiliation and identification, fewer monotheists who have been practicing for a while, fewer Christians, more Buddhists, more spiritual, but not religious, more who identify with all religions. That's the concern with informed, and that would be part of the informed consent is providing information about potential religious effects of participating in practices that haven't necessarily been fully disentangled from the religious foundations for those programs. And then another part of informed consent would be kind of medical risks and benefits, which is a a whole nother topic, which is of concern for a lot of parents is that there also are studies suggesting that doing yoga and meditation, they can actually make kids more stressed, or they might say they feel less stressed, but their cortisol levels show that they are more stressed. Uh, Or there can be negative reactions to meditation, even to the point of people becoming more um, suicidal, more depressed, even non-functional. That also would be a part of those kinds of informed consent documents. Anytime you use the term mindfulness or the term yoga to kind of present a program, that's kind of putting all of this cultural constellation into play because all you have to do is Google one of those terms, type in yoga, type in mindfulness. It's not going to be very long before you find some of these religious affiliations. These are not kind of ancient, long dead practices that no one's involved in the religious kind of uh, parts of, but a large percentage of people who practice these are are doing it for religious spiritual reasons. The longer they practice, the more so. So basically kind of what this boils down to is care with terms like mindfulness and yoga, but then really those principles of transparency and voluntarism and really the kind of the act on change in policy would be to make these opt-in programs. And in practice, that would generally mean before and after school programs, lunchtime programs, just like the Good News Club with their Bible study clubs. They can do that in school buildings after school because then it's not being endorsed by the school. So programs that were kind of presented on that kind of very voluntary, informed kind of level where it's not being endorsed by the state, you're not going to run into the same kinds of legal challenges that are currently at play in today's culture. Okay, well, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Well, you are very welcome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. 